0: Welcome to the New Books Network. The conventional wisdom surrounding New York's structural development is plagued by two myths. The first is that New York's urbanization was a gradual expansion outward from the core of Manhattan. The second is that Manhattan's powerful city planners and administrators dictated the terms of development in and around the city. Today, we're going to dispel these myths as we shift our gaze toward the geographical fringes of 19th and 20th century New York City. Welcome to the New Books Network channel in New York City history, a podcast for the Gotham Center at the CUNY Graduate School. My name is Gary Gutierrez. I'm a PhD candidate of US history at New York University. Today, I'm joined by Kara Schlichting, an assistant professor of history at Queens College CUNY and co-editor of the H Environment Roundtable Reviews. We're going to discuss her book, New York Recentered: Building the Metropolis from the Shore. Professor Schlichting, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Good morning.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. So before we tackle those myths mentioned a second ago, which you lay out in the introduction of your book, uh, can you give us a little background on your general research interests and why you gravitated towards the history of planning in New
1: York? So I came to planning history through environmental history. When I um, began working on this project, I was really interested in how environment manifests in densely urbanized spaces. Right? That for a long time, environmental history has been complicating the idea that environment is somewhere somewhere else, somewhere outside a city. It's in bison um, populations or um, national parks. And... I had been really interested by the scholarship of urban environmental historians who were looking for everyday nature and uh, daily interactions with nature in things as mundane as uh, going to a local park. And so that's where I had started. I want to think about nature in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, metropolitan area. And uh, I was thinking about it because I was living in Manhattan and running along the East River on a really um, much loved, but less than uh, uh, less than beautiful running track of, by the power plant, uh, Conhead Power Plant along 14th Street down into the Lower East Side. It's a really gritty place to find nature, but it was the closest I could get. And so that is what had inspired me. But I realized as I moved through the parks of the East River system that my questions about environment couldn't be in, um, couldn't be uh, separated from questions about infrastructure. And so I came to realize that planning history and environmental history would have to come together if I wanted to answer the questions I had about particularly waterfront development and waterfronts as an interesting component of the urban um. Um, the urban environment, and so I fell rather deeply into planning history for five years.
0: I'm a, I'm, I'm familiar with the route you're talking about. I used to live in uh, in Stuyvesant Town, so uh, yeah, it's it's it's, it's funny. I, I I can see you there, like running and visualizing, sort of you know, like your project and sort of how uh, the environment interacts with uh, with the waterfront. Um,
1: for those who aren't familiar. Actually- we should outline its East river, uh, out water outtake for Con Ed's, uh, energy plant about seven feet wide of running track that goes two directions and then seven lanes of highway and then the rest of Manhattan. So it's a, it's a particularly gritty interaction.
0: Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It, it certainly blends, uh, environment and city, you know, in in a very, uh, In real time, as you're running along the river. So, (laughs) Um, on that note, uh, I have to admit, it it may sound silly, but I was about halfway through your book when I finally realized uh, you are just following the water from the Long Island Sound down the East River, uh, taking a detour through the Harlem River. Um, Did you know from the start of your project that you'd be writing a coastal history, or did the archival research sort of push you to the coast?
1: My personal interests push me to the coast, but I have always been interested in spatial understandings of history. it's how my it's how my brain always introduces itself to historical questions. I'm interested in the physicality of the built environment and the natural spaces that New Yorkers move through and my interest in built environment and, got me to thinking about the really complex system of, of of nature that the harbor estuary of greater New York Bay represents. Yeah. And it was this combination of wanting to think spatially about New York City history and New York environmental history, but also the, uh, the challenge of doing such a complex, uh, ecosystems history led me to focus on a single arm of that estuary. And so the East, the, the, what I call the kind of the greater East river became a lens through which I could focus on, on the complexity of this space, the, The harbor estuary involves the lower bay around Staten Island, the upper bay, the Hudson River, the Harlem River, the East River, the huge marshlands of Jamaica Bay, and then up into Long Island Sound. It's all really one ecological system. And I had the suspicion, and it turned out to be a good one, that it had to be broken down into pieces to really think carefully through the questions of material and cultural nature that I was after.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you, you definitely get the sense uh, when reading your book that, um, you know, these, that the body of water that you're talking about uh, is not a border of separation, but rather areas of connection between New York's neighborhoods, parks, and various environs. Um, yeah, so.
1: I think you could do this project. You could ask similar questions about the Hudson River. You could ask similar questions about the estuaries surrounding Staten Island, and scholars have. And so, using a, a component of this environment is a way into, uh, into kind of deeply researched and, and deeply local history, which is one of the things that I'm um, a real advocate for and I find very satisfying. Yeah,
0: yeah, you, you can tell. It's, and it, and it, tra- it definitely translates uh, to the reader, which is excellent. Um, so in the first couple of pages of your book, uh, you, you waste no time laying out your overarching goal. Uh, of this project here, uh, which I read as demonstrating that the New York City we all know and love today uh, was not built outwards from the center of Manhattan in a linear fashion, uh, but also across the city's periphery uh, from the 19th to the mid 20th centuries. And I think this is, this is a rather unique, uh, if not bold claim to make uh, considering that conventional New York City histories place Manhattan at the center of the universe. Um, with this in mind, how exactly does your book challenge popular assumptions about urban development in New York City?
1: One of the the pleasures of writing about New York City history is that you never have to do it all. You do not need to give the origin stories of New York and introduce your general, general urban history readership to the city. They've heard of it, right? And so the pleasure of having such rich and smart scholarship about New York City is that Manhattan's movers and shakers and its neighborhoods and its iconic structures have been deeply uh, researched. And I, su- I, I very much value that, that scholarship and I support it. But what I was thinking when I started to look at this book is that Manhattan's about 20 square miles of an over 300 square mile city because in 1898 the consolidation of the five boroughs brings in two counties that become boroughs on long island another island which is staten island uh, richmond county and then the only mainland section of new york which is the bronx and i just wanted to know more about everyday experiences in urban space and urban nature beyond the urban core because it is um, a minority of the of the new york experience and so uh, in the way I, I teach this in the same way is that New York is, is more than just Manhattan and Manhattan will always be valuable to scholars and citizens of this five borough city, but it is not the only thing of value in this city's history or in its contemporary politics or populations. So it comes, the, the project here is to take seriously people who are not at the center of power as nevertheless having influence over the city that they live in.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you see it throughout the book. Um, And in the first couple of chapters, uh, you see this uh, as you trace urban development in the late 19th century, um, demonstrating that people outside of Manhattan were at times able to enact their own city building agendas. Uh, For example, you have residents of north side neighborhoods across the Harlem River, asserting a sort of home rule politics, uh, as as it's referred to, uh, through their local planning committees such as the Department of Street Improvements. Uh, At the same time, there are these monumental annexations going on. uh, For that area, beginning uh, with the incorporation of Trans Harlem River neighborhoods in 1874, which make up the city's 23rd and 24th wards subsequently. Uh, My question is, how did annexation affect local planning initiatives or in other words, uh, how did incorporation of trans Harlem neighborhoods in 1874 affect or not affect its subsequent development?
1: So, you're getting at here one of the key tensions of doing metropolitan history or thinking about the five boroughs as a unit rather than just thinking about Manhattan as synonymous with the city is that there is always this push and pull between home rule initiatives. So for example, in what becomes the Bronx, as you're speaking of here in uh, the second chapter of my book, there is a great push for local control over street grading and paving and laying out because the what will become Bronx communities feel as if they're being overshadowed and overlooked by Manhattan interests. But at the same time, those same communities understand that being linked to Manhattan is a way towards modernization of their infrastructure. And so it's, it's both a blessing and a curse that these communities are going to negotiate. And so when New York City reinvents what it will be, right, and I argue that to leave the island of Manhattan and annex mainland territory is a fundamental shift in the thinking about the city, because now it is going to be a regional system, not an island bound colonial um, footprint of New York. And so to leave Manhattan and to incorporate territory of mainland New York, which is what becomes the Bronx at the time, it's just part of lower Westchester County, is a a shifting of perspective. It's a zooming out to consider how pieces fit into a whole. And traversing the Harlem is the first step to that. And I would argue that what we see coming we see this community tension between home rule and regionalism is at the heart of the tensions between the Bronx and Manhattan, but then the rest of the boroughs when you uh, add them in 1898. And to be frank, it's a pattern that you can continue outside of the municipal jurisdictions of even the consolidated city. This tension of the benefits of metropolitan growth and benefits of regionalism are always going to be on locals' minds as they decide whether or not they need to embrace city planning ideas or reject them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you definitely get the sense, you know, that the very concept of the region as well uh, as an organizing geographical marker is constantly shifting over time. Um, and, you know, I, as you demonstrated shaped by a variety of factors, be it real estate patterns, social, social and economic trends, park space, uh, but perhaps most notably, uh, and my favorite is the, these local planning committees. Um, and that sort of tension between regionalism and localism, uh, I think is, is really central in your book. Um, and it gives us an idea of how the regional city evolves over time.
1: And those local communities often have surprising visions of what appropriate metropolitan growth should look like. And it's a place of real innovation in urban form, and they don't all last. Some are subsumed by... 19th, um, really 20th century urbanization. But because of the shifting political jurisdictions of late 19th century New York, the slow accumulation of outer boroughs, the Bronx is annexed in two steps, 1870s, early 1890s, and then the other boroughs are added in 1898. So that slow accumulation overlaps with a moment in which city planning is still professionalizing. There isn't a hard and fast rule about who counts as a city planner. And so it makes it makes the field of city building and urbanization a place ripe for localism and uh, innovation on individual levels.
0: And so, sort of mirroring these debates uh, that are going on between regionalism and localism, is this tension between public and private interests. What kind of spaces are sparking debates between public and private development in your book? And are there instances where public and private interests are blurred?
1: This actually gets us back to the question that you asked earlier about why waterfronts? And I would argue that a waterfront is a perfect place to look at the collision of public and private interest because it is a finite type of real estate. And in a port city like New York, it's going to serve numerous roles. It's a place for economic growth, right? The infrastructure of commercial shipping is key to New York's economy. And it's also a place for... uh, services that the city is trying to offer its residents, but that can be noxious, right? It's a place for dumps and it's a place for water treatment later in the 20th century water treatment plants. It's also a place for infrastructure about not just of a commercial dock, but for roads and bridges. And then finally, it's a place of residency and recreation. And so the waterfront has all of these complicated and conflicting users and values built in. And it's a way to understand how public and private goods really start to um, to uh, collide as the outer boroughs mature in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I see housing and recreation as some of the clearest examples of public and private good. Public recreation versus private residency comes into play a lot on the Upper East River in the East Bronx and then in the suburban counties of Nassau on Long Island. But another one, which is in some ways more interesting to me because of the way it brings, it allows me to ask uh, questions about the ecosystem of this estuary is refuse disposal, dumps and waste are another example of where public and private collide. New York City makes trash and getting rid of its trash is a public good by the end of the 19th and early 20th century. But where those that trash ends up tends to be largely landfills that are coastal because coastlines can sponge in more, can absorb more refuse. And then that becomes a question about a public good infringing on private interests, such as uh, homes that are odor free or access to a public park that is uh, clean and safe to swim at. So I think the coast is one lens that really helps us see this, the way that public and private can sometimes align, but often collide in a vision of regionalism.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, uh, as I was reading too about, uh, you know, dumps uh, that you talk about and, you know, this this waterfront property and development, uh, it, it reminded me about, it reminded me of a waterfront park like Millennium Park, for instance, in Chicago, uh, where they sort of embrace this blend of public-private development and interest. Um, you could replace, you know, refuse dumps with parking as far as, like, the debates between, like, the land use goes um, and whether this is a public good and I, I, how much public funds go into this versus private funds and, uh, and, and who possesses the right uh, to this waterfront, this valuable waterfront property. Um, so yeah, I, what, I think it resonates. Yeah.
1: What waterfront property brings in is an extra layer of of jurisdiction. Because in the United States, due to the public trust doctrine established at the nation's founding, the public trust doctrine, in theory, protects the public's right to the foreshore, to tide washed lands. But this is just this is an amorphous doctrine that the federal government in uh, supports, but lets local states, governments dictate on the ground. So it's an example of where local history can be really satisfying. It Looking at the state of New York and the state of Connecticut helps reveal the sticky situation of the public trust doctrine as an additional layer of um, public-private conflict on coastlines.
0: Yeah, it seems... Um... Especially in these earlier years, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating patterns that are going on between, uh, or just in general, between residents and people settling and making the land that they're on in the periphery their own. Um, So with that in mind, your chapter on working class leisure and settlements on the Upper East River is perhaps my favorite in the book. Uh, In this chapter, you discuss how uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, summer camp colonies along the coast and the East Bronx were converted from temporary tents into these permanent bungalow communities by the area's residents. Uh, so, so these people outside the purview of formal large-scale planners effectively transform these sites of summertime leisure into blue-collar suburbs, which demonstrates a couple key points. Uh, first, it, it lends to your argument that small-scale actors outside of Manhattan truly are reshaping the city according to their own wants and needs. Uh, And second, that the emerging leisure economy around the turn of the century was vital to the development of the urban periphery, especially with that second point in mind. uh, Can you explain how and why leisure uh, became such an integral part of settlement and development along New York's coast?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I I absolutely agree with the way you're framing this here, because I think leisure is one of these is one of these human impulses that you can is resonates across space and time. In 2020, this summer it was a really hot summer in Brooklyn where I live, and I too wanted to go to the beach. I wanted to get out of the urban core and feel the cool breeze and see the ocean, maybe swim in it. Right, there were some sharks that were interfering with my planet on the south shore of Long Island this summer. But nevertheless, in 2020 uh, to 1920, these are similar impulses that urbanites have. And so one of the things about leisure is it's really a universalizing experience. This this interest to h- find a day of relaxation in an environment is, that is different than the one you live in. And that could be in an environment like Central Park or it could be in the stories I tell about the East Bronx and Northern Queens. And what's interesting about these spaces is that they are at most gently scenic. They don't have the big, wide, sandy, white beaches of the south shore of Long Island. So when people think about greater New York City's beaches, they often think of the Rockaways or maybe farther afield on Long Island, Jones Beach, which are these massive, um, uh, sandy, big wave spaces. The Upper East River is not that. It is an estuary. It doesn't have any type of uh, of um, surf, and it's often rocky beaches because of the estuary. It is a really rich ecosystem, but it's also pungent with low tide when marshland and rocks and are exposed. And so, what I was interested in about the Upper East River is that who would go to this space? Who would find this useful to their lives as a place of relaxation in material nature? And it turns out that it tends to be particularly working class communities who are in the East Bronx and Northern Queens. When you get out a little bit farther, and what's so useful about regional history is you can compare and contrast, is to include Long Island, lets me consider the famed Gold Coast of Northern. Nassau County, where the richest people in America built monumental estates on bluffs overlooking the Sound. That's a different way of interacting with nature as a place of leisure and um, uh, kind of leisure and privacy. Because the people who are on the Upper East River and in Northern Queens, so Northern Queens has... Uh, uh, a beer garden resort created by William Steinway and George Eric, two leading figures in the German-American community of New York in the late 19th century. They call it Bowery um, Bay, and then they rename it North Beach because the Bowery in Manhattan has such a reputation by the end of the 19th century. And they're fighting against some anti-German sentiment with the embrace of um, of kind of German beer gardens as a center of community as a center of community. And so they're creating this ger- very German-American beer garden amusement park where LaGuardia Airport stares, stands today. And we should come back to about why these places are mostly gone. Because they're... they're uh, waters of Flushing Bay are relatively clean compared to the waters around the urban core of Manhattan Island. And then just directly across the Upper East River and across the bay is the East Bronx and the East Bronx has a number of peninsulas with lots of coastline. And they're flat and marshy and they haven't been to, they haven't been included in urbanization but yet they're conveniently close to the urban core. And so that combination of affordability and accessibility in that the fact that the rich haven't overtaken these neighborhoods because they're gently scenic, makes space for working class people to carve out their own visions of, of leisure. And some of these places become move from leisure to residency. There are three bungalow communities in the East Bronx that, particularly starting with the First World War and housing shortages in the city, and construction shortages for housing materials. Materials, you know what I mean. And then later in the 20s and 30s, these, what start as canvas tents that are taken down at the end of the summer season are slowly converted into bungalow communities. And you can drive through the East Bronx today and visit Silver Beach and Harding Park and Edgewater and see these spaces. they are wonderful maps from the 1920s when New York City imagines a complete streetscape where they've created a street plan, but they haven't built the streets. And they envision an East Bronx totally mapped with official city streets. But when you get to zoom in on these corners of um, Harding Park and Silver Beach, you can see that the city has mapped two street systems in a single place by the 1920s. They have the streets that are supposed to be there that the official city plan has recommended. And then they have to acknowledge these very narrow uh, streets and small blocks of bungalow communities that have grown up ignoring the street plan. And by the 1920s, as they become increasingly year-round communities, the city's uh, maps start to say, what I always imagine as a kind of grumpy acquiescence to reality on the ground, that these local communities have built a different urban streetscape for the East Bronx, and the city starts to recognize it by the 1920s. And it's a good moment of leisure leading to working class residency. And we don't think about individual homes and home ownership as a facet of New York City real estate history. But they are in the East Bronx, and we see the way that local impulses shape urban form to fit local needs. These are very small bungalows, some are 700 square feet. But if you can convert your bungalow over time into a year round residence, it's a way to save money and enter a housing market that is difficult for a lot of working class New Yorkers to enter, particularly in a city dominated by rental, not. Um, ownership systems of property.
0: Yeah. And and I imagine, (laughs) I mean, nowadays, this is hot real estate space as well, that (laughs) these people, you know, over a hundred years ago, uh, you know, were able to settle and make their own. Um, So
1: they have fabulous echoes across the 20th century where eventually they're combined into cooperative neighborhoods and they're owned the same way cooperative buildings are owned in New York city, which is very rare for freestanding homes because they had been built as land leases where the ownership of the house had been separated from owner, from the lease of the property. And so owning the, the house itself was cheaper than owning the property along with the house, but they have a, Uh, they have really important echoes across the 20th century. In the 1960s and 1970s, they become, particularly Harding Park becomes increasingly Puerto Rican. And the community that ends up there, and I've written about this in other places, really evokes the feel of a coastal fishing village in Harding Park, in these bungalow waterfront communities. And the people who move into the neighborhood say, this reminds me of places my Family came from in Puerto Rico, or I came from in Puerto Rico, and it's working class, and I can afford to rebuild a home on my own. So it's the same reason in the 1970s that we see a reinvestment in this community is that it's a way for working class New Yorkers to have a different real estate and residential experience. But the environment continues to play an important role. It was the coastal setting and chance to clam and swim that drew people in the 19-teens. But it's also why people started to leave these places, because as the harbor becomes increasingly polluted, it is less appealing to be on its shorefront. And the East Bronx in particular has shorelines with dumped cars, junked cars by the 1970s, half-built parks, and the sewer systems of these communities were never integrated into the city's sewer system. So sometimes there's raw sewage runoff. And so we can always see how environment is a boon in developing these communities, but it can also be a real detriment to their longevity. It's why Bowery Bay and the Steinway and Eretz amusement park starts to decline is the water is increasingly polluted in Northern Queens by the, by the 19 teens. And then prohibition hits. And it's very hard to. And First World War and Prohibition make it very hard to run a German community, uh, lager beer focused destination. Add environmental pollution, in these spaces they disappear. They don't have longevity.
0: So, but by, by the time we get to the 1930s, uh, mm-hmm. the New York Parks Department and you know professional large scale planning committees. Are now in full force. In comes Bob Moses, who is <laughs> the most famous, or some, the most infamous city planner uh, of the 20th century. What What does his rise to power demonstrate about the changes in planning politics over time uh, throughout your book?
1: So, it, in in my book, and I think it's important to say that my conception of Moses stops in 1940. And I think this is part of my interest in revising Moses's career in the first half of the 20th century, because Moses is, you know, he is infamous and he becomes incredibly powerful by the 1930s. He, I wouldn't call him a planner because he often finds the planners to be you know, he calls them, he, he thinks they're all kind of dreamers and artists, and they're not useful for the gritty, everyday city building. He's a city builder, and he's an administrator, and he's really good at amassing power to oversee his projects. But I would say that Moses comes on the scene in 1924 in New York State, and it, he is an example of how regional politics matter in the shaping of New York. He helps write the act, the, the proposal, a reform proposal to create a state park commission in 1920s, which is then created and that um, Governor Al Smith will appoint Moses to run the State Council on parks and then that State Council on parks will propose a park system for Long Island, the Long Island State Park system to cover Nassau and Suffolk County, so the eastern half of the island. and then Moses will be appointed head of that. And then he will use this committee on Long Island to try to replicate the success of county level planning that had happened in Westchester the decade earlier. And so what we see here is a state vision for regional planning that is inspired by the, the metropolitan fringe. Westchester County on in mainland New York, so neighboring the Bronx, And I would argue the Bronx as well are really places of innovation in regional park planning and parks as a skeleton of regional growth. And Moses is inspired by those actors and goes to Long Island in the late 20s. And then by 1934, when LaGuardia is elected mayor and LaGuardia is going to consolidate the um, five boroughs parks departments, because up until that moment, each borough is doing its own things in terms of parks. In fact, Queens doesn't even have a parks department until 1911, just lets Brooklyn like make decisions. So as a result, it has very few parks. It's got a lot of cemeteries, open space, but not so many parks. And so then that's when Moses steps in, onto the scene in New York City, when he's appointed commissioner of the Consolidated Parks Department in 1934. But I would argue you can't understand Moses' vision for New York without understanding this regional system of parks infrastructure that he helps build, but is only one of many figures in the realization of it. But then when he gets to New York, he gets money because of the New Deal. And that's what really catapults him into this next level of of power. It's the access to money.
0: Yeah. And this uh, and this eventually sort of climaxes in your book, I think, with with the World Fair, which is what you ultimately end the book on. I believe that's your final
1: chapter. It is. So, the World's Fair in this project, the chapters are designed to alternate back and forth through local visions of urban growth and an, a regional future and professionalized or administrative visions. So, it goes back and forth between power brokers and everyday residents on the urban periphery. But the last, and I thought I was going to be able to do that for the story of Queens in the 1930s, because 1939 through 1940 is the first World's Fair in New York. It's uh, the World of Tomorrow. And it redevelops Flushing Meadows. It's the same site that we see the second New York World's Fair on in, uh, in 64, in 65. But in fact, the influx of federal money overwhelms local interests in this fair development, it's very hard to fight the power of New Deal funds. And the other thing that I realized that there wasn't as much local organization for how they might envision a quote-unquote modern Queens, which is really at the heart of the World's Fair in this era, is that the Flushing Meadows is so large. That's the site of the fair. It's a kind of like a long, skinny slice of pizza, and that the communities in Forest Hills versus the communities in College Point versus the communities in Corona—these are all neighborhoods around this this um, marshland of Flushing Meadows—are so disparate in their socioeconomic status and their identity, and the, the local economies, and they're geographically separated from each other that there is never a coalescing of a of a grassroots vision for. What flushing meadows could be beyond what's there already? There's huge boosterism from the borough level, and then there's a flood of funding that allows, you know, New Deal administrators, state administrators, city administrators, uh, Department of Sewers, uh, the Triborough Bridge Authority, which is another state um, organizing body that Moses also runs. It allows these really big, it's like peak big infrastructure through uh, public. Authorities, and that's what comes to play to rebuild Flushing and present a vision of a modern, a modern urban edge, a modern Queens by
0: 1940. So, as historians, we we like to identify the patterns or anomalies uh, that help us make sense of our past, ultimately to understand the present. are your book's findings distinct to New York, or does your work also apply to other cities across the United States? Uh, have you, you know, do dialogue with other, other books or other cities at all, um, or see yourself potentially doing so in the future?
1: So in some ways, New York is exemplary, right? It's so big. It's so complex in terms of its jurisdiction, its scale, the scale of the problems it looks at. I would argue that its environment is unique as well, that this harbor system is the most complex uh, harbor system in North America. San Francisco is like wishing and hoping it's coming in second, right? That's the the, the next best uh, version of a setting that is as complex as New York's. And so some of these things make it unique. But the rise of a regional city is something that happens beyond New York. Right. We see the friction between private and public interests and the impulses to centralize and decentralize government. These are stories of the 20th century American city. Right. Should we, is, should, is regionalism something you can convince residents to embrace, right? That the city is a collective good that is bigger than an individual or bigger than um, a neighborhood and should be managed as thus by an administrative authority. Like that's a big sell that we see this question and rejection of it often across places that are not just New York and that are even smaller, right? Localism is a potent force in New York City's history, but in urban history writ large. So I would think that 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 question can be applied to other cities and should be applied to other cities. And in many excellent cases has been examined. Chicago, for example, is a a city that has these questions of localism and regionalism built into it, as does Los Angeles. And there's been good work um, in in, um, kind of both subfields of those cities.
0: So my, my final question, uh, thank you again for being here. Uh, but before we wrap up, I, I want to ask what's next, uh, for you, uh, New York recentered was your first book, uh, right? Yeah. It was so it, it evolved from your, uh, from your dissertation. Is there anything that you're currently working on or that you hope to be working on in the near future?
1: Yes. So i I've got a project I'm working on right now, and then I have a general interest that I am very eager to watch my fellow scholars of New York City and fellow scholars of American cities look into. So I'll start with what I'm working on is almost an inversion of Chapter 3 and Chapter 4 of New York Recentered. Chapter 3 looks at the leisure, cl- the leisure spaces of working-class New Yorkers in bungalows and at beer gardens and local beaches. In the, mostly in the summertime. And then chapter four looks at how government officials try to provide regional leisure infrastructure in the 1920s and 30s. So beaches, parks, and parkways to an increasingly mobile and increasingly large leisure class, kind of working class leisure class, the masses. And in doing that project, I came across a footnote in the 1920s. It's really a footnote of history about when Al Smith decides to make a radio address to explain his reasoning for a Long Island State Park Commission. He knows that the people on Long Island, particularly those in Nassau County, are going to push back at big regional parks to bring urbanites to Long Island beaches. He knows that there's going to be some nimbyism there. I mean, Nassau County exists because of a rejection of New York City of a, of a regionalism it Nassau and Queens County were all the same until 1898 when New Yorkers voted to consolidate with the city to consolidate the greater city they uh, western half of the county said yes, and so they are queens. But the eastern half said no thanks, we are not tying our future to that city. And then a year later, 1899, we get the creation of Nassau County. So it literally exists as a rejection of regionalism. So Smith knows that announcing a park system is going to cause uh, people uh, to protest, the bringing the kind of quote-unquote rabble of the Lower East Side out to Long Island beaches. But he waits until a heat wave in July of 1925. And he uses that heat wave as part of his argument. He says, look how hot New Yorkers are. And it says in the newspapers and the radio address that he gives to make his point that New Yorkers deserve more than the dusty highways and the hot tenements. One of the reports of that heat wave, and I'm getting there, I swear, God, there's an end to the story. One of the reports of that heat wave is that Brooklynites are sleeping on the steps of the subway station by Borough Hall, so in downtown Brooklyn, to catch the artificial breezes of the trains as they go by. And I thought, yikes, how hot would you have to be that that is the place that you would choose to spend your evening and so I wanted to know more because, as someone who really, I see myself as an urban and environmental historian. And it gets back to like the beginning of this conversation where I'm interested in everyday nature, right? Like, I don't see bison in my everyday life. I don't go to the Rocky Mountains in my everyday life, but I interact with nature in New York and I do it through two things mostly parks. Well, I guess we should do um, subway animal life, parks, and weather. And so I was interested in weather as a function or a manifestation of environment, as a manifestation of climate, as uh, something that is a part of our environmental experiences. And so I'm working now on understanding experiences of of weather in uh, the pre-climate controlled city. And I started with summer because I started with this question and it might just end up being just summer. There is so much information about the way the built environment creates environmental inequalities that, that summer weather exposes really the working class to the rich can kind of mitigate the challenges of heat and humidity by leaving or having kind of airy mansions or homes on you know, the top of a building. And so it's the opposite of my working class New Yorkers who went to the East Bronx for a summer camp. It's the people who couldn't get out. And I'm looking at the everyday environmental challenges that uh, the the city creates around exposure to heat and humidity, but also cold and ice. And I think darkness counts as well. As an environment as sunlight being an environmental amenity. But right now I'm just working on summer and there are sources. I've got sources up to my eyeballs. So we'll see if I ever get out of of summer. But the other thing I wanted to point to that I'm hoping the other scholars are working on in, you know, in a different version of the multiverse, it would be what I would do is. I think there's great need to consider a historical approach. And I think Ted Steinberg's book, Gotham Unbound, has done a really good kind of opening shot at this to understand the way that this waterfront city of made land needs to grapple with its ecological past as it faces profound ecological change with rising sea levels in the coming, um, you know, 100 years. And so... I'm always interested in ideas of coastal redevelopment and what type of land use we're putting on our, the city's waterfront and whether or not it creates environmental equities in terms of a green gentrification, but also exposure to environmental risk. So that's my that's my hope for someone else to, to do. And in another world, I would do it. But I, I'm stuck thinking about sweaty New Yorkers on their fire escapes. <laughs> that's where I am but I look forward to reading. I think there's great scholarship to be done to think about, not just for New York, for you know, lots of big man-made spaces to think about how environmental risk is being maintained. Andy Horitz's work on Katrina is a really great example of how you can do this in New Orleans.
0: Yeah, from what I remember too, that uh, that same East River waterfront that we run on is experiencing flooding. Mm-hmm you know, oh, yeah. at like unprecedented levels, you know, so yeah.
1: It's, LaGuardia it's... airport is marshland. Why are we surprised that with a mm. s- storm <laughs> surge takes over the, um, takes over the, uh, the, um, the airfield in Jamaica Bay and JFK. These are the same questions. If we put infrastructure like that, that we want out of sight and out of mind on our coastal periphery, we must be prepared to think critically about how that coastal periphery changes. Our shoreline is inherently uh, dynamic. And so, those are we need to think more about that dynamic kind of evolution of a coastline as we put our power plants, our airports, our sewage treatment, all in those corners, and then expect it to be fine. It it won't be. So, I look forward to the historians who will continue to ask questions about those spaces.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent uh, an excellent point to end on, and and I eagerly await your forthcoming work. Uh so
1: we were just I, talking I, about I thoroughly enjoyed archives. our
0: conversation.
1: We were just talking about archives in the time of COVID so it's going to be a long wait.
0: <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, I uh I'm yeah, gosh, I'm, my, we, my colleagues and I, all, to, all of us are quite familiar go out with to many struggles. other
1: things, But the archives are a small, a small a small sadness amongst many. One day we'll get oh, yeah. back.
0: Yeah, hopefully sooner rather than later. So
1: That's the goal. That's the dream.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Well, thank you so much again for your time and your insights, um, taking time out of your valuable schedule to be here and uh, to speak with us.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: So uh, once again, my name is Gary Gutierrez, joined by Professor Kara Schlichting. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network channel in New York City history, a podcast for the Gotham Center at the CUNY Graduate School.